Hello, and welcome to the Nomi Key Show. I am Nomi Key Konst, and baby, it's been really cold out there. Okay, I don't usually talk about weather on the show, but the crisis in Texas this week has made a perfect case for the Green New Deal. This is the second time in six months that extreme weather has overwhelmed the electric power grid in a major state. Last summer, it was the heat and wildfires in California, which sent air conditioning use soaring and forced rolling blackouts, something they're familiar with. This week, the same thing happened in Texas, except it was the brutal, unexpected, frigid cold. And while who can forget a year without power in parts of America's last colony, Puerto Rico? Yesterday, power plants broke down or ran out of gas just as everyone turned their electric heat up in Texas. The system couldn't handle the demand, so power was shut down and Texans were left shivering in their homes and the homeless on the streets. Rolling blackouts are not a good look in a supposedly you know, modern country with an advanced democracy and the strongest economy in the world. And this will get worse, much, much worse, unless we act, like yesterday. Extreme weather is a clear outcome of climate change. Why do we have to say this? Hot days get hotter, dry days get drier, cold days get colder. And as the global climate system is thrown further and further off kilter, we also get more of these strange days where Arctic air comes cascading to Dallas or Athens, Greece. So as the hot days get hotter and some of the coldest days get even colder, the power grid will break down more often unless we make it more resilient. Ultimately, the only solution is to stop pumping, pumping carbon and other greenhouse gases into the atmosphere and reverse climate change. But to do that, we will need more electric power, not less. It's confusing. We will need to charge all of those electric cars and trucks, for example. And we want homes kept warm with electricity rather than fossil fuels. Although it must be efficient electric heat, not that wasteful space heater stuff so many people turned on this week because they don't have heating systems. The future, as they say, is electric. But right now, our electric service depends on an aging, 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 aging fossil fuel plants and a distribution system created in the 19th century. A few years ago, the American Society of Civil Engineers offered a report card on U.S. infrastructure. Remember, infrastructure includes everything from our crumbling bridges and potholed highways to airports that make Ellis Island look welcoming. The engineers awarded the power grid a D plus. They called it an aging patchwork, out of date, with out of date power plants, exposed transmission lines and wasteful consumption. Even if we did not have a climate crisis, we would still have a crisis of the power grid and a need to build it back for uh, the 21st century. So on top of, you know, one of America's top infrastructure priorities, and possibly the, the, the top priority, must be rebuilding this power grid. So it spews off less carbon and ultimately none at all. So it can handle even higher and unexpected peak loads. So power supply is a reason to invest in a business, not an obstacle. And by the way, so the power grid is hardened against cyber attacks, this will cost a lot of money. One estimate is $5 trillion. It could be more. But frankly, that's good news. These are big projects, arguably the biggest infrastructure effort in history. But as Joe Biden has been saying, we need to go big. 
Now's the time we should be spending. Now's the time to go big. This will mean lots of jobs, real, absolutely essential jobs, building clean energy, electric generation, setting up the high power cable to transmit power more efficiently from where it is to where it is needed, building new local grids so power can flow from the solar panels on your roofs as easily as from the wind turbine off the coast. And of course, someone needs to write all the code to make this the kind of smart power grid that knows where the power can be generated most cheaply and cleanly and where it is most needed before rolling blackouts shut off the heat or the air conditioners. We will also need to hire instructors for the programs to train people who lose their jobs in fracking and oil refining and coal mining. They can be part of the workforce that builds the new power grid. Now, of course, this is America. So we can't have this conversation without someone trying to make a culture war out of it. I am looking at Governor Abbott of Texas. The governor of Texas actually tried to blame wind power turbines for the electric failures this week. Sean, this shows how the Green New Deal would be a deadly deal for the United States of America. Texas is blessed with multiple sources of energy, such as uh, natural gas and oil uh, and nuclear, as, as well as uh, solar and wind. Uh, but you saw from what Trace said, uh, and that is our wind and our solar got shut down, and, and they were uh, collectively more than 10 percent of our power grid. And that thrust Texas into a situation where it was lacking power in a statewide basis. Uh, Governor Abbott, okay, he's correct that some of the giant wind turbines froze in the brutal cold, just as power lines snapped and fossil fuel plants failed. But the governor should do a bit of research. The wind turbines froze because they don't have the heaters that are commonly used on the wind turbines in more northern states, where the cold is a normal winter day. Maybe you need to order those, Governor. But more important, how about trying to work together to solve this challenge rather than looking for someone else to blame, Governor? No one is talking about taking away your precious fossil, fossil, I can't even say it, your precious fossil fuels today. Nobody is talking about taking it away today. It's coming. It's a transition. It's a fast transition. And it will take time and money, as we said earlier. But governor, even you know that wind and solar generated electricity is now cheaper, cheaper than fossil fuels, even in Texas. That's why some of the fossil fuel companies out in West Texas use wind power to generate electricity to run their fracking. Governor, you know that. So as you say in Texas, cut the bullcrap. As you replace old fossil fuel plants with renewable power as part of rebuilding the grid, electric costs for your citizens can go down. And guess what? They might even vote for you again. If you really have them at heart and not just the fossil fuel companies who donate to you, you will fight for that. If you press ahead, wind and solar could deliver half your electricity in the 2030s. This isn't a theoretical debate anymore. The climate crisis is well underway and it's only getting worse. The only way we will get through it is to speak the truth to each other and then get to work. But it has to happen. Enough of these culture debates. We have to go big. And I'm also looking at you, President Biden. As our friend Napoleon DeLegend said yesterday on the show, it is an opportunity for you, President Biden, to go show the world that we are just the opposite 
of Donald Trump when it comes to climate. So that Governor Abbott's not speaking on behalf of the entire country and, and the, the entire world looking at us saying, you are killing us because you're too obsessed with Fox News debates. It is up to you, Joe Biden, to take ownership of this. Go big. Make a speech about climate. Do more than President Obama did. Go down to Texas right now. Put on your, your coat. Put on your mittens. Go down with Bernie. Talk about climate. Make this an issue. Make this your case for jobs. Unionize jobs in the Green New Deal. Make this a case about transitioning from those dirty jobs into clean energy jobs, actual clean energy jobs. This is your opportunity, Joe Biden. This is it. Do not let the Republicans take this conversation away from what needs to happen right now. Not tomorrow, not in a month, not in 10 years, not in some unachievable transition, but right now. Be the leader for your grandchildren. We have a great show today. Jordan Zacharin and our very own Simon Rode are here. And of course, uh, right after this, Little break. We will talk to the one and only John Nichols, who's the national affairs correspondent of the nation. He's going to go back to that thing called the impeachment, which was this week. <laughs> We're going to talk about uh, how the impeachment trial ended and left us with such an empty feeling about our democracy, our supposed democracy uh, republic. We'll be right back after the break. He said we'd bring him back, and he's back. Uh, the one and only John Nichols. He is the author of many, many, many books. But uh, most recently, he's the author for The Fight for the Soul of the Democratic Party, which is the enduring legacy of Henry Wallace's anti-fascist, anti-racist politics. And he is a national affairs correspondent for The Nation magazine and online, I guess. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> John, you are on mute, just as a heads up. Uh, but thank you for joining us. We're exci excited to... Uh, bookmark or bookend that's the proper way of saying it uh the impeachment trial with you which i had to remind people happened just a few days ago <laughs> oh the world that we live in john yeah. who would have thought that impeachment would just fly by like that impeachment number two i'm old enough to remember my first impeachment <laughs> i mean I'm okay much older than you and i can remember uh richard nixon's you you have now gone through four impeachments yeah, I was, a, I was, you know, I was in uh, elementary into middle school, but uh, I believe. But uh, yeah, I mean, I, I do recall it because I was a political geek even as a kid. And um, and so, yeah, I've seen a lot of them over the years. And the, the perverse part is that some of the same people keep coming back. You know, okay, Lindsey like who? Graham I'm curious. Of, Lindsey Graham was part of the Clinton impeachment, major oh, yeah. player in the Clinton impeachment. And so... Um, you know, it just, it, he, it, it, the funny thing about Lindsey Graham and the Clinton impeachment is if you took what he said and simply repurposed it to this one, he would have been the lead impeachment manager against Trump. Someone who has lots of time and, um, is obsessed with these things as, as much as we are, it would be fun to see a mashup of that or almost like, you know, the, the questions being answered, asked, and then Lindsey Graham answering them with his old questions. So he, like, he's asking, he, he today is asking questions of of the uh, the Democrats, and then he's answering as 
a Democrat. <laughs> you could. And the interesting thing about it is uh, you don't even have to go back to 1998, 1999 to, to do that. You could simply take what he said about Trump in 2015 and 2016 uh, and use those as indictments as well. But the fact of the matter is then you could also use Ted Cruz uh, and a host of other people. And and so, I, you know, I, I think that impeachment, and I know you'll have brilliant questions on it, and I'm glad to go wherever you want to go, but I'll, I'll say up front that I think impeachment is sort of like um, kind of the national stress test, right? We, mm. we kind of see whether we're capable of holding someone to account. And as a historian of impeachment, somebody who's written books about it, I can tell you we always fail. Tell me why. Um, power doesn't like to be challenged. Power doesn't like to be held to account. Uh, the elites in our political life, like the elites in our economic life, uh, may divide on issues. They may actually argue with one another quite passionately. But at the end of the day, they usually pull their punches when it comes time to actually punish someone who has done great harm. And so uh, I think that the impeachment trial that occurred last week was the most important impeachment trial in the history of the country. I don't think there's any question of that. I say that as a historian of impeachment who has read every impeachment trial, you know, read the, the Constitutional Convention notes on why impeachment was created, the whole bit. I think that, that last week's trial was by far, by a million miles, the most important. It was also the clearest example of why we have the impeachment power. The impeachment power was created by imperfect white men uh, more than 200 years ago. And the, they had got a lot of things wrong, but they got one thing right. They knew they were imperfect. And they knew that future leaders would be as well. And as people who had fought a revolution against a king, they wanted to make sure that future presidents would not use the awesome power of the office to perpetuate themselves in that position, i.e. to make themselves kings. And that's exactly what you had with Donald Trump. Clear and simple, easy case. This is why impeachment exists. And yet, at the end of the day, it is important to note that after, frankly, a, a pretty good prosecution, I think Jamie Raskin and, and others did a, a good job prosecuting, they still couldn't, they still couldn't get it. Still couldn't get there. So, I mean, well, let's go back to the founders for a second. So if, if, if the founders who were very conscious of the fact that, you know, power, all, total, all power corrupts, you know, the, the old line, um, and that these were humans, uh, was this the best way to hold a president accountable if he used too much of his power? Uh, I mean, was there ever a conversation about something else other than impeachment or what could have been a better way to impeach so that in this situation, which you said, you know, a few seconds ago is um, the best case for impeachment that we've had and yet still <laughs> nothing? So, no, Miki, the answer to your question is really uh, is, is a pretty simple one. Is there a better way to do it? Absolutely. And because when you've had presidents who have committed the high crimes and misdemeanors that many of our presidents have committed, and I would always argue that as bad as what happened with Trump, I do think what happened with Trump is the worst, right? It is because it's the actual attempt to perpetuate power. Uh, I don't think we should neglect 
presidents who've led us into illegal and immoral wars, presidents who've corrupted their offices to uh, enrich their political allies and and to you know warp the policies of this country to benefit themselves and and those around them. So I mean, there's plenty of reasons for impeachment. The better way to do it would have been to say. 50% of the House and 50% of the Senate, right? That's simple as, as it could be. You get a majority vote, person is, you've, you've impeached and removed. Now, the only reason they went for the much higher threshold is the argument, well, um, you know, these, the people of the country have put this person in power. You want to make it hard to take him out. I understand that. I, 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 and I, I respect, you know, the idea of the thresholds. But here's the problem with that. They also established the Electoral College, right. which got in the way of the people choosing the president anyway. And so at some fundamental level, uh, if, if we're going to go by that argument, then the time to impeach Trump was not the second impeachment, but the first one, because he had come to power without even a majority of the vote, without mm -hmm. even a, a plurality of the vote. He got beat in, in 2016. Uh, but only came to power because of the Electoral College. And so you can get lost in the convoluted calculations of all this. But the fact of the matter is that this country was founded by elites. And while the elites understood that there was a need to have some checks and balances on presidential power, and that was a good thing, they were not willing to put an easy check and balance on. And that was that's where the problem comes in, because, you you know, we got 57 votes for impeachment or for, for and, conviction. And is that be, so, so, so thinking about that, it, the 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 other option went up against their personal interests. So the other option would have been, OK, we want to put a check on the president and uh, in, in, in all power. But, you know, let's keep in mind here uh, the way that we're going to put that check in is to make sure that the mob doesn't have that that absolute check over. It's really the elites that have. So ultimately, it's a design flaw because, yes, yeah. you know, you and, can't. Uh, my dear comrade and friend over many years now passed, Gore Vidal, uh -huh. um, it, who and, and Gore wrote the introduction to my book on impeachment. And in typical Gore fashion, uh, he was very encouraging of the book, very supportive of it, but also had a gripe. <laughs> he always did. And his gripe was that, well, he said, well, impeachment's good and we ought to use it to get rid of Bush and Cheney, undoubtedly. Um, you know, what would really be good is if we had the recall power, i.e. if the people of the country, not the politicians, yeah. but the people of the country could petition for a new election. I, you know, at a critical point, say, hey, uh, George W. Bush and Dick Cheney led us into an illegal and immoral war. We're going to petition for their recall. And, and removal from office, or George W. Bush and Dick Cheney failed to respond to Hurricane Katrina, we're going to petition for their, you know, it, the, wow. the bottom line. That would put the power in the hands of the people. And, I, and as always, Gore was a genius. Um, and that's not a bad solution. And so we can look at, at better approaches. But I do think the critical thing is to remember at the heart of it where mm -hmm. the problem is. And that is, we have a problem in this country with accountability. Mm -hmm. We don't hold our elites to account when they commit crimes. That happens in the criminal justice system, that happens in the civil system, and that mm -hmm. happens in the constitutional processes of the country. That's what we saw last week. And while all the Democrats got it right, and seven Republicans came over, which is remarkable, that's still not enough. And, and I will point to one other kind of flaw in this thing as well. 
and that is that the elites manage the trial, right? And they sort of have free-floating rules as it goes along. And you'll note that on Saturday morning in this trial, after presenting, again, what I think was the, the strongest argument for conviction that I've ever seen in any impeachment trial, um, uh, Jamie Raskin and others, Jamie came up and Congressman Raskin came up and said, you know, uh, we'd like to call a witness or so. Now, in a trial, that is not such a radical concept. Right. Uh, and the senators immediately all said, oh, yeah, good, we're for that. And then they realized what that would involve. How did they not know that going in? I think they Was that a strategy? Well, I think that, that I think that Jamie Raskin and the impeachment managers, I think it's fair to say, were disinclined to call witnesses because they fa- frankly felt their case was sufficient, right? And then on the eve of the vote, the conviction right. vote, knowing they had an uphill vote, uh, they did what any good lawyer does. They recognized some new information had, had arisen right. out of a congresswoman saying, you know, she had evidence, she was willing to testify. Uh, and they, you know, it's a, it's a little bit of a long bomb, but they said, hey, let, let's call this witness in. She's got evidence. Let's do it. We can do it fast. We can do it efficiently. That would have opened up a lot of new avenues. Uh, but you saw the reaction of Republicans and, frankly, quite a few Democrats, yeah. which was, yikes, you know, this is getting real. This is this is becoming serious here. Why, and, why would the Democrats do that, though? What, 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 why would they be so worried about it? Becoming an actual impeachment. Well, actual trial. I, yeah, I, don't think, I don't think all of them were. I think there were some Democrats who were, you know, who got it. And note that people like Sheldon Whitehouse said, yeah. maybe we should have some witnesses here. Yeah. Right. So it was there were people who got it. But I, I think that it what you ended up with there was a situation where kind of entrenched DC power looked at a hard impeachment or a hard conviction. And it was would have been hard, even with witnesses. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm certain of that. It would have been hard. But And they said, eh, you know, we really want to get back to not governing on other things. And, and so, you know, we don't want to drag this out and this could go bad on us. They, they're constantly second guessing. And this is sort of the disease of a lot of official Washington. They fear impeachment. And that's mm-hmm. Republicans and Democrats. Sure. They fear a power that can hold them to account and that could actually derail them, pull mm-hmm. them out of their of their you know political positions they're in. This is this is so hardwired that, you know, when again Bush and Cheney caught out completely on leading us into an illegal and immoral war in Iraq, still didn't get impeached for it. They lied about it. We had the so evidence of the lies. That's a great okay, like okay, so you have in post Nixon world, which I mean, I think we can all agree that the entire world of politics in, in this country um, shifted post-Nixon for the worse. And I mean, in, in terms of- In a lot of, of ways. Money in politics, yeah. what, what presidents can get away with, what, uh, you know, the, the loosening of regulations, of course, this, and, then, and, and his administration, uh, you know, being part of the Reagan world and then the, the Trump world, and of course the, the, the Bush world in some ways. So uh, what is it about- Post Nixon world, I mean, the Bushes, the Bush family, one or two, um, two mostly, uh, should have been impeached. Like as you, as you just said, Clinton was impeached, Trump was impeached, Nixon's impeached. 
What dare is about I this? Say, dare I say, Lyndon Johnson should have been impeached for lying about the Gulf of Tonkin. Gulf, yeah. You know, wow. if we the lies were told, then then that was an impeachable offense, without a doubt. Look at what Vietnam cost us. So, and, so what is it that? Um, why? Why this this turn and how? Presidents sure. lead. Well, you know, we had used we we fetishize impeachment, right? We uh, we think of it as this really dangerous, really scary thing, and and you know something we only talk about you know late at night when nobody else is around. And um, maybe you do, John. What? <laughs> maybe you do. Oh yeah, I'm a, yeah, deep right. People will tell you that. But, but the the thing is, but I'm talking about politicians do. They, they you know, it's one of the things that scares them to talk about in public. And and so you understand that for a century they didn't impeach any president, even though there was plenty of reasons to do so along the way. I mean, Herbert Hoover's handling of the depression was an impeachable offense uh, by any measure. But they they finally did it with Nixon. It was necessary to do it with Nixon. Now we look at, back at what Nixon did. It was still crimes. There were incredible high crimes and misdemeanors. But compared to you know, Trump, it doesn't look as bad. But you know, at that time, in that more innocent age, they were like, OK, we've got to hold this guy to account. They were 100% right. And what they were doing was they were sort of dusting off an old tool, right? opening up the box and saying, oh, this is dangerous. Don't spill it. right? And, and they got it out. And the House uh, Judiciary Committee actually moved in the proper direction. It was bipartisan. They were heading toward holding Nixon to account. And then he looked at the reality, said, hmm, I think I'm heading out of here, going to get on the plane, fly to San Clemente. And the reaction to this, High Crimes and Misdemeanors by Richard Nixon, was instead of saying, well, that's cool. You can resign and fly to San Clemente, but we are still going to impeach and convict you because you committed crimes. It's the same as in any other circumstance. You don't get to quit, you know, like the bank robbing crew right before, you know, you get get charged with the crime and say, well, I'm no longer a bank robber here. No, I mean, you can still you still get charged and you still get, you know, tried and convicted. And instead of, of saying we're going to do this, they said, oh, see ya. That's great. Thank you for letting us off the hook. Thank right. you for making it easier for us. The reaction was, instead of seeking justice, it was, no, that's great. You, th this problem went away. And there was one wonderful congressman from um, Sacramento. His last name was Mann, I believe, M-A-N-N. And um, he was uh, not a lawyer. He was an appliance dealer who had gotten, you know, like a, you know, guy ran a little, you know, TV and, and you know, uh, washing machine store in Sacramento, got himself elected to Congress in a Democratic year. And he went to Tip O'Neill after Nixon flew off. And he said, maybe I'm getting something wrong here because I'm not some big constitutional lawyer. But it seems to me if somebody committed these crimes, maybe we ought to still, you know, like continue the process vote to impeach, try him and convict him because you really kind of want to say to future presidents, this is bad. Don't do this. Well, we didn't. This guy got sent away. Didn't happen. Ford comes along, pardons Nixon, even says, you know, you did all this stuff. We're going to double pardon. And, and again, most of the elites, both parties said, oh, that's good. Yeah. 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 We don't want to have to deal with this anymore. Take it away from us. Right. And that set a pattern. Ronald Reagan did Iran-Contra. He was in the thick of it, right? He lied about it 
to the American people and then said, oh yeah, I realized, I, I still think I did the right thing, but I guess it turns out I lied. Um, and, and they said, oh, that's cool. We, we've got all the evidence here. It's amazing. We, it's not like Nixon breaking into you know, the Watergate building. Now we got you know, trading drugs for arms and stuff like that. Yeah, it's unbelievable stuff with our you know, sworn enemies. But yeah, you're kind of old and you're almost done. So yeah, see ya. Go ahead. And then Bush, who's you know, up to his eyeballs in the thing, he becomes president. And then he pardons the people who ultimately are shown to have been a part of it. And he's not held to account. And it, you know, again and again and again, I could you know, belabor it forever, but the fact is we, we clearly signal as a country, not we the people, but our elected representatives, they really don't like this thing. And, and they use horrible language as regards impeachment. Impeachment is glorious. It's a wonderful thing. It's like you're coming for the king and you got the power to take him down. That is great. King yeah. sins against the, the basic premises of the Republic removed. That's fantastic. And you even do it without violence. I mean, this is way better than Europe. It's got all sorts of great stuff. And, and yet it's always referred to by, by Democrats and Republicans as this horrible, traumatic, awful, divisive thing. No, No, it's not. It's a cool thing. Here's here's a, here's a, a thing I was just thinking, like if, if the vice president could run on their own, right? Doesn't have to be attached to the party. Maybe is, maybe isn't. Do you think perhaps there'd be some sort of incentive maybe to continue on with impeachment that he would be able to pull the coalition together because he has his own, he or she has their own personal interests uh, to say, all right, you're out. My turn. You're right about you're right about um, some of these uh, some of these calculations as regards how we choose our leaders and and of course you know impeachment is is how you get rid of a leader who's done horrible wrong yeah and and remember a process that puts people into power who do horrible wrong may, might be worthy of reexamination itself and so the point you bring up about electing a president vice president separately right. And having this additional sort of check and balance and this additional alternative, somebody who is legitimately, unlike our, our vice president, who is legitimately chosen by the people, not chosen by a candidate and then attached to a ticket, um, that could open up a, another avenue. And I, and I think a, an appealing avenue. It's a legitimate one. You know, Nomiki, you've worked a lot on, on the reforms of the Democratic Party, right? And the, the challenges of getting the Democratic Party on track. Uh, good luck to you. Um, and, <laughs> I've retired but, uh, from that job, by yeah, the way. Yeah, <laughs> I think it's, it's overwhelming work. But, but here's an interesting thing. It used to be, as a historian of these things, used to be that in uh, several states, uh, most notably New Hampshire, they used to have primary for president and for vice president. Right, right. Right? And so the people, the grassroots of the party could actually say, yeah, this is who we'd like to see as the presidential nominee. This is like who we'd like to see as the vice presidential nominee because of an understanding that you didn't necessarily want the nominee for president to pick their vice president. That's putting the, the ease of governing, right, or the ease of campaigning ahead of the popular will. And, and so we have a lot of these places where, frankly, uh, radical reform is a good idea. Let me offer you two more. And it could be, and, and that could be in particular, I mean, to this presidency, I just saw Biden's town hall uh, yesterday. And Which was pretty good. He was good, he's but he's old. He's, yeah, he's a little on the old side. He's old and he's aging. And, and Kindly, though. It, 
Fairly. He, he talks to little second grade girls, you know. Very nicely. I Very thought. nicely. Yes. I give him all his due. Yes. With so. that being said, um, you know, there's a very realistic chance that he's, he's something could happen to him. I'm, 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 I'm hoping it doesn't, but uh, we could be having a, a, a real conversation about this. Somebody who didn't win one state uh, in the primary, an already broken system uh, to elect, could potentially become our president. Oh, um, with all due respect, though, yeah, this is, this is not nearly as bad fun. as you've seen. Oh, the I think said fun. I'm like, we've oh, had plenty of people assume the presidency, were, you know, for, with, with far less of a of a claim. And, sure, and, but I mean, it's it's yeah. um, I think in an era that you know, right now where we're looking for more progress and reform, I yeah. think there are these ideas. How did that happen? When did the parties decide to to pick the vice president? Was it after Henry yeah. Wallace? I mean, well, uh, that was, no, well, that it, was before. They used to always choose a ticket without a process. Yeah, you always but, then, had a ticket, but here's the interesting thing. You know, at the founding of the country, um, the original Constitution, the top two finishers became president and vice president. Now, in that circumstance, um, Donald Trump's vice president would have been Hillary Clinton. Oh, my God. Uh, just oh, to be clear here. Amazing. And, and so, or potentially. And, and, but that, they did, that didn't work out really well because the vice president... The, the uh, make sure I got this right. The third vice president of the United States shot the former secretary of the treasury in a dispute over and over some yes. election issues. And so we sort of, we wrote a really good play about it, but then we decided maybe not, maybe that's not the best system. Look, if you really want to talk about reform. Are you our old vice president? I think he gets a bad rap. I got to say, What's that? I, I think he gets a bad rap. That was, sure. a, you know, good Tammany hall guy. <laughs> Yeah, you know, the interesting thing is that again, Gorbachev wrote a book about him that was rather favorable. Right. Um, yeah, but uh, no, look, here's the bottom line: you want to talk about the reforms that we ought yeah, to do? Uh, you know, I'd love to see a bunch of reforms as regards presidency and vice presidency and all these things like that. Um, yeah, I happen to be of the view that we've got we're we kind of lucked into a relatively good president, and vice president right now. We, you know, they're better than certainly better than what we have, um, but. Uh, you know, it's always the luck of the draw there, and I and I find it to be uh, that to be a very unsettling reality. So yes, do I think that we should have the ability to recall presidents, as Gorbachev suggested? Yes, I do. That's wow. what a democracy would do. Do I think that we should have the ability uh, to have a special election if a president dies or yes. resigns or something else? You know, whatever, whatever happens. Yes, it's a democracy. We're supposed to handing it off to a vice president. No, that's not the way to do it. The way to do it is to have a vice president who can occupy that position in that emergency period before you organize an election. Uh, but yes, I mean, I, I think it's absurd. And, and by the way, that vice president would get a big advantage because they'd be the sitting yeah. person there, you know. But I think it's absurd to have a system that says, yeah, we go through years of campaigning and organizing to get get a president. And then if someone has to resign or, you know, falls into ill health or whatever, then we just hand it off. Right. Um, so that's number one. I'd love to see that kind of discussion. That's big constitutional reform. That's going into the body of the document. And it, as long as we're there, I wouldn't mind discussing the U.S. Senate, um, because with all due respect, this is the last thing I'll throw into this mix here is that the senators who voted to impeach the uh, or to convict Donald Trump, yep. represented 62% of America. The senators who voted to acquit him represented 38% of America. So, and we see this on, you know, I mean, 
Amy Coney Barrett sits on the Supreme Court, not, you know, with the support of senators who represent the majority of Americans or anywhere near the majority of Americans, but with this sort of a tiny minority, yeah. you know, senators representing a tiny minority. So the Senate doesn't work. It doesn't work as a small D democratic body. It doesn't represent. And uh, this is something that ultimately we have to discuss. Changing its makeup is really hard, except mm -hmm. if we add some states. I will say state because Statehood in Puerto Rico, the Statehood Party oh. is a far right wing racist party. And I think the people of Puerto Rico would not be. Respect. Would, well, actually, yeah. Puerto Rico will let them decide. Let yep. everybody decide. I was actually talking about the Virgin Islands. The Virgin Islands, that's interesting. Oh, good. Look at you shaking you it up a little bit. I'm hip to that. You know, I'm not making anybody be a state. Yeah. That's my rule. That's, and, a, that's the I'm right rule to strongly. And I have to, I've been one of the longtime advocates for alternative visions as regards what Puerto Rico, where Puerto Rico might go. Um, and, but we got Micronesia too. We got a lot of places that are not currently represented. But okay. They also, as a whole other conversation, yeah, <laughs> um, it's, I mean, many of these places see themselves as their own countries that speak their own languages. And, and uh, you know, it's not just right to decide, but it actually may not even make their lives easier or. Here's what, here's the answer, Nomi. I love the Puerto Rico conversation, by the way. I could go on this for, I, yeah, I for love two it hours. I love and, it. I, and, and here's the answer. Here's the answer yeah. on, on, on all of these. We have about roughly 8 million Americans yeah. who are, have, are, can't vote for president. Well, the D.C. folks can, but so that takes that down a little bit. But we have you know, about 8 million who do not have House or Senate representation. Taxation without representation. Exactly. So whether we go statehood, mm -hmm. whether we go with some alternative model that simply allows them to have representation, we should have, nobody should live in this country and not, not have a vote for president and congressional representation and Senate mm -hmm. representation. Now, how you divide that up and where you associate it, what you do, how big someplace has to be to be a state. I understand all those questions. Mm -hmm. We ought to be discussing that because it's absolutely atrocious that uh, we have a Senate right now that is A, dramatically unrepresentative, right? It doesn't represent the will of the overall of people. And B, doesn't include representatives for 8 million Americans. Eight what million if we combine two states? <laughs> Or, or what if we just took like, I'm not going to name the states because they'll get really mad at me. But what if we took some very far right states that have one congressperson or whatever and uh, just combine them with a few other and just had one, you know. Well, here's another twist. How about <laughs> dividing up states? Oh, yeah. That I mean, actually, that's more likely to happen because, well, I mean, how many that's not states versus down? It's I, not a perfect a, solution either, by the yeah. way, because, you know, you might end up, you know, with five Texases, right? You know, and, and one of those, one or two of those Texases would be a very, very liberal state, right? Yeah. Probably two of them. Uh, but you might have three conservative ones. You know, I mean, I, I understand that California, blah, blah, blah. So much fun. Yeah. <laughs> it's like imperialism within, <laughs> within the borders of the country. Well, or reverse, reverse imperialism. Re reverse <laughs> imperialism, I think. It's why um, I'm a militant advocate for Scottish independence. Yes, and Catalonia and, and yeah, many absolutely. others. Um, real quick before you, you yeah. leave, we have a question from the audience. They ask, it's Yodeler Yodels is who's asking the question. <laughs> Do you think that the House Senate would move to disbar Trump from holding political office at the 50% threshold now that the impeachment file, uh, uh, that the impeachment has failed? 
They have, they have the power to do that, I believe. Um, this is something that's been raised by a number of, of scholars, frankly. It's, it's come from the academic community, if you will, and, which is sort of terrific. And people who are experts on Reconstruction and the Reconstruction Amendments to the Constitution, 13, 14, 15, will tell you that, uh, in fact, those amendments uh, were written you know, for, with a lot of purposes, but one of the purposes was to make sure that the people who had just committed treason did not come right back in and govern. And, uh, and so it, there's no requirement in there that a president be convicted of high crimes and misdemeanors in order to be mm -hmm. disqualified from running again. That, that, it doesn't say that there at all. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, you'd have legal wrangling. You know, people would file suits and there'd be mm -hmm. grumbling and blah, blah, blah. Uh, but again, if we had elites that were actually willing to hold people to account for their high crimes and misdemeanors and wrong headed actions, this is a vehicle that they could use. And, uh, and you know, I, here's the interesting thing about it. Um, at the start of World War II, Michael Foote, the great British socialist and a couple of his comrades, wrote a book called Guilty Men. And they identified all the people who had appeased Hitler. And they, they had big chapters on all of them. And, and they said, these people should never be in government so again. Smart. Such they a great it. thing to put into. In, yeah. So smart. And they did it like weeks after Dunkirk. I mean, yeah. they, right at the start yeah. of the war. They said, these people should never, ever be near government again because of what they did. Now, the interesting thing was they were not barred from being in government. And, I, you know, but... They were so effective in putting that down that it really did destroy a lot of careers. And so um, because I fear the elites are unlikely mm -hmm. to hold one another to account, mm -hmm. even with the, the dis, you know, disbarment from running again for president, something like that, I think it falls to us, mm -hmm. you and me, and our, the listeners here, we the people. We have a duty That's to right. remember and to identify the guilty men, and to ask the tough questions, to talk freely and happily about real reforms and about a better country. And, and we need to ask the deeper questions as well. Uh, why only impeach for the constitutional crimes that he committed? Why wasn't Donald Trump impeached for his brutal mishandling, of deter deliberate mishandling of the COVID crisis that has left a half million people or almost a half million people dead? Um, if we have a higher standard of accountability in this country, one that really goes to the, the crimes that harm people, mm -hmm. we will be a better country. And uh, whether we get that from Congress or the Senate or from the elites or whether we have to bring it ourselves, uh, however we get to it, it's necessary because mm -hmm. accountability drives policy. You don't solve fundamental problems unless you hold those in the elites, those who maintain the status quo to account. I'm looking forward to reading your new book called uh, That Names the Names. And <laughs> <laughs> and I'll work on the memes for it, I guess. No, I yeah, just send me, send me whatever you got. <laughs> John Nichols, always a pleasure. Uh, thanks for joining us. Hope to have you on when, when uh, Tish James is in full investigation of Donald yes. Trump and we can analyze from that perspective because we shall not forget it's great. It's a great feeling to move on, but also never again. Uh, so thank you so much. Move on to the next accountability moment. Um, There's plenty of it. Thank you so much for having me, Nomaki. I really appreciate it. And go check out John's fantastic book. I personally recommend it. It is called 
the fight for the soul of the Democratic Party, the enduring legacy of Henry Wallace's anti-fascist, anti-racist politics. Definitely worth reading. We should have you on uh, to discuss that again, maybe for the book club. That would be a fun one to do. Um, But as always, thank you so much. Thank you. All right, guys, we will be back right after this break with Simon and Jordan to talk about today's lots of news, lots of stuff happening. Welcome back to the Nomi Key Show. Guys, are you part of our book club? We have some more partnerships to announce. Uh, Not only do we have Verso Books, we now have Haymarket Books partnering up with us. Our great comrades over there doing the good work, uh, supporting authors who are taking on corporate interests, taking on the military industrial complex, and so much more. Um, We are working with them on our book club. Uh, So go check out our book club at patreon.com slash the Nomi Key Show. You can sign up for one book a month, two books a month, or four books a month. And it comes with great podcasts uh, that are interviews with people about the books or uh, the authors themselves. And we're hoping to do some events, uh, virtual events in the near future uh, over Zoom, most likely, I believe, with our book club members. All right. Simon Rode is a member of our team. He was part of Bernie 2020 as an organizer. And we have Jordan Zachran back, who is, ooh, I'm loving your background, Jordan. I'm like seeing it much more clearly right now. Really? What is, what is that book behind you? I'm very curious. We got the, um, we got a Communist Manifesto in graphic novel style. Oh, it is. It, oh, yes. it's graphic novel. I'm like, yeah. I can't see, but it looks, it looks like it. Love <laughs> it. it. Yeah. Very on brand. At an uh, independent Jordan bookstore. So, you know, I'm really trying to be as woke as possible today. You should join our book club. Um, sure. <laughs> Jordan Zachran is the head of uh, the head. He runs Progressives Everywhere newsletter. Tongue twister. Can't say it all together. All good. Okay. So big story of today, man, uh, climate change is catching up with some Republicans who are forced to actually deal with what's happening Uh that you know it's not just remember that time just as a little throwback here remember that time uh when they threw a a um snowball and uh on the floor of the house i believe and said climate change isn't real i have a snowball right here i think it was james inhofe who brought a snowball on there yes out of his mind (laughs) his mind well i i you know i'm not always uh the the best the biggest msnbc fan but chris hayes really killed it last night and i want to i just want to roll this clip of him talking about this disaster in in houston right now the people that run the texas grid wind power outages are quote the least significant factor in the blackouts and the main factors are frozen instruments at natural gas coal and even nuclear facilities it is just a lie that wind turbines, green energy, are the root causes of the problems in Texas right now. It is a lie like Donald Trump won the election, a lie like there was widespread voter fraud, a lie pumped into millions of people's brains as they watch TV. And let's be clear, this is probably as consequential a lie as any about the election because energy and how we produce it is the single biggest issue this country will face in the medium term. I mean, this stuff is complicated. Let's be clear here, right? Everyone takes the power grid for granted, unless you work on it for a living. It's among the most arcane areas of public policy. It's not like sparking great debate on cable news. But then a few times a year, something like this happens. And we all this moment where we remember the power grid is the foundation of modern civilization. It is also the key to overcoming climate change. Republicans and right-wing media, they want to take every policy issue and turn it into some 
painful culture war idiocy. And there's an interest to do it. The fossil fuel companies want this too, right? They want to turn into them culture war idiots about the libs don't want you to have power. So um, he talks about this as if they believe in these culture wars, that it's not just about being a distraction tactic. But what I saw with this was, was them actually recognizing maybe partially for the first time that climate change exists, but then blaming the solution to climate change, the incremental solution, I should say, uh, for the climate change. This is some of like jujitsu, right? Simon, your eyes are rolling. <laughs> Do you have whiplash from that argument? It's so frustrating because, you know, that like a lot of the problems um, could have been actually solved if we had better invested in the infrastructure for cleaner energy. Um, so, it's, yeah, it's, it's just it's like very much like they're taking the opposite approach. Um, and really what we need to be doing is putting more money into into this infrastructure so that these things like uh, wind turbines don't freeze. Um, but they're they're just turning it the other way around. It's really it's really frustrating to watch. Is this just a delay tactic, Jordan? Like, is it always about them coming up with different excuses so that the industries can like figure out their finances and start reinvesting in different places? I mean, I said this in the opening that um, you know, fracked gas power plant, other places they're running off of wind right now. So because it's cheaper. So. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's, they've been, you know, Texas, especially they've been off the normal power grid that everyone else is on since the thirties and the new deal, because they did not want to be regulated. So this is like, this is the, the Texas spirit. They've been avoiding dealing with climate change, dealing with regulations for the last like 80 plus years, 80, 90 years. And so for them to blame it on, you know, the, the left who, which again has zero power in Texas, like I wish that Democrats could take blame because that would mean they were in power. Um, it's so it's, you know, it's pretty desperate. It's one of those things where you, that's just their, uh, I don't even know if it's a delight tactic. It's just like their instinctual thing, blame it on the left. But, uh, you know, when they have, when the left has no power in Texas, cause they didn't win any of these elections, uh, down there. And, you know, it's very clear that Texas doesn't, uh, charge income tax. They let the oil industry do whatever they want down there. It's clearly the, the, the right wing Republicans fault. I will say that uh, hopefully no one on Fox, you know, was watching Fox News. Like, you know, Hannity said all those things. Tucker Carlson said all those things, but no one had power, so maybe they just couldn't see it. You know, they're they're, they're trying to blame things on the left. <laughs> no one in Texas could watch it. You know, they're all like, it's it's horrible that they don't have power, but you know, like they're they're trying to poison the minds of people who are just literally trying to stay warm. So maybe that's uh, you know. I mean, this is also just like why those mutual aid networks are so important, why Democrats should be hyper local, why the Democratic Party should be the organizing pa- party, because these are the moments when people remember um, these is old machine politics. But they remember who comes to your door and says, you know, do you need an extra blanket? Do you need some hot water? Can I help you? Uh, I mean, that's why that stuff is the perfect antithesis to this BS propaganda that's just rotting people's minds right now. Well, if you remember um, back in uh, Superstorm Sandy, right, in New York, New Jersey, um, that was, yeah, I was there. I was here. I lost power for a week. I was lucky to crash with friends, and it wasn't, you know, negative 20 degrees outside. But Chris Christie in New Jersey, not a very popular guy, not a very popular governor at the time, he sprung to action. I mean, he bullied people on the beach and, you know, yelled at people on the boardwalk and was just kind of a jerk. But he took action and 
whatever that action was, but he seemed like he was trying to do something. Yeah. He was trying, he was quomoing it, you know, he was actually doing damage, but uh, acting like he was doing uh, doing good. And that helped him win re-election the next year, uh, just, you know, in 2013. And then he closed a, uh, an exit off of a, yes. <laughs> a bridge yeah. and then all hell. Yeah, that was, which uh, yeah. So, um, wait, which is just back to the previous conversation we have with John Nichols. I mean, the fact that Chris Christie could go down for that, which is a really bad thing. I'm not, yeah. I'm not discounting what happened. He could go down for that, but Donald Trump couldn't go down for inciting a riot or many other things that he's done. <laughs> It's yeah. There's some sort of Teflon on that guy, but um, besides, you know, I don't know. Like Greg, Greg Abbott was on Fox News last night. You know, he should be uh, doing anything but that. You know, the Attorney General there, Ken Paxton, has been like charged with 35 crimes. That guy. So hopefully, this is the beginning of the end. Not the beginning of the end. Beginning of the beginning of uh, taking people down like that. Because at some at some point, ideology doesn't work. It doesn't work on people if they literally don't have power in their homes. I mean, it's the Green New Deal. Um, we just have to be real about this is we don't have the votes for the Green New Deal. We don't have nearly anywhere near the votes for the Green New Deal right now. And I don't know if there's an alternative strategy um, that that speeds things. I mean, I don't know what could be a better case for the Green New Deal than the fact that Puerto Rico did not have power for a year. Part of Puerto Rico did not have power for a year that uh, Hurricane Sandy, Superstorm Sandy, happened and wiped out half the island of Manhattan of power for a week. The fact that California loses power every year for different parts of California, not to mention pe rich people's houses fall into the ocean uh, or are lit on fire or whatever. How much more personalized could it get for them to do something? It's not even, this is beyond psychosis at some point. It's like with all the money, all the power you have in office, um, it's just, I, I don't, I, I, it's like the police unions, right? They must have something on these people. They must be holding something over their heads for them not to rise up into action and say, okay, the Green New Deal, which is, by the way, not perfect. It is a great transition. It is a progressive transition, right? I, I, did, I guess these people have been in power for so long. They've been in power for so long. They have, you know, been so comfortable so long. No one, their house are not falling into the ocean. Like even in Texas, you know, when all uh, a couple of years ago during that hurricane, it was a gigantic catastrophe. Uh, actually, Trump went to go try and help them because, you know, they're not, you know, uh, all Latinos from Puerto Rico. But right. these people are not in any sort of danger, I guess is what it is. They have not experienced that. They haven't dealt with it. And they haven't been anywhere near, you know, people who are dealing with it. Their donors aren't those people. Their donors aren't. Uh, people who are saying, oh, my house is destroyed. You know, so I guess they have nothing to worry about. And half of them are 80. So what do they care? Yeah. Climate can and change. That, who cares? Maybe their grave will slide into the ocean. But other than that. <laughs> Simon, go ahead. Yeah, I'm going to mute myself while I laugh. Uh, the, yeah, or, you know, they're so out of touch with their constituents and with the, with the just uh, normal people in this country who, uh, you know, just like the, the less money you have or the darker your skin tone, like the more you're going to be feeling the effects of climate change sooner and harsher. Um, and so it, the people in Washington are not those people, right? They're, they're not uh, representative of, of, that, uh, of those constituents. So uh, to answer your question, Nomiki, like what can we do if we can't get the votes for the Green New Deal? Um, what, a lot of what we can do is work locally. Uh, in here in Oregon, there's been some push to get an Oregon Green New Deal. We have not uh, been able to manage, but um, there's you, you can do a lot of stuff uh, even on your city level uh, to get some things changed. Um, and it, it's not it's not a, a huge systemic solution, but it's it's the start of something. It's a lot more accessible usually on on that scale. 
Yeah, I think that's that's the smart strategy. Is it's you, you have to do both at the same time. Um, you know, it's not one or the other. You know, even even pushing for it na- nationally makes it more popular at the local level, and give and 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 gives more leverage. I mean, I can only speak on behalf of New York where I live, but uh, had Bernie Sanders not run at the national level and elevated the conversation around Medicare for all and a bunch of other issues, uh, we probably wouldn't have a Democratic Senate in in New York because. All these people felt that they were, um, they had the, the, the landscape was set for them to challenge some of our, our rogue senators and bad Democrats who were caucusing with Republicans, and their volunteers were Bernie Sanders supporters. And so suddenly we're having real serious conversations about, uh, you know, the New York Health Act, which is like a Medicare for All bill in New York, or a Green New Deal, or taxing the rich, things that weren't even on the table just a few years ago. So I think that's a great way to put it is when, when we go national, also go local. Yeah. And I think that, you know, we're looking at your student debt. Biden talked yes. about it last night. Uh, we're talking, talking about anything with the filibuster, expanding the Supreme court yesterday. So like, even just today, Georgia tried to get rid of, and they already passed within the state Senate. No, uh, no excuse happens to be voting. So that's huge. And we should be expanding the Supreme court and adding seats and ending the filibuster and passing a voting rights act. And I think, why wouldn't they do that? Because it'll help Democrats. But they don't care if it'll help Democrats. They care if it helps them, yeah. uh, you know, lawmakers. And so all of these things that should be done don't benefit them personally. That, and once one of those things happens, more seems possible. You know, once uh, a filibuster is killed to expand voting rights, why can't the filibuster be killed for minimum wage increase, which is supported by like 80% of the country? Yeah. It's, it's crazy that it won't get in, that they won't drop the filibuster just for that. But that's what happens when, like, their careers are more important than uh, the ideals that they're supposed to represent. I mean, what's really killing me about this era that we've entered, um, and this is why we do so much analysis of the right wing is and the right wing media is we are beholden. Our it's beyond being beholden to the Republicans now. We are beholden by far right policies. The fact that we're not even able to push through a vote for a $15 minimum wage at this point after 10 years is embarrassing for the Democrats who have had power in, in several states in, I mean, great, you know, great work in many states that have passed it with the party or not. Um, But it just shows you the failure, the absolute failure and courage of our current Democrats and how much they're beholden to an extreme far right uh, and I don't mean just a racist right. I mean a, an extreme far right economic set of politics, which is by default racist. I want to quickly move to um, speaking of racism. <laughs> remember Bill O'Reilly? Remember that guy? Who? Yeah, exactly. He's like, he's like a podcast now or something. <laughs> he does. He's, he's just a small podcaster. Um, <laughs> although we shouldn't joke because Rush Limbaugh, who just died, uh, had the most popular radio show of all time. So it's a shame that. Yeah, and Bill O'Reilly had really the good. most popular cable show i think of all time uh so or at least you know of the time so bill o'reilly says in a tweet let's put that tweet up mr biden says there is a quote rise in white supremacy where okay guys it has been um a little over a month since we had a uh racist insurrection uh on the capitol in which people who were chanting uh, Hitler outside and wearing um, shirts that uh, called for another Auschwitz, uh, who were saying things like white power. Um, they stormed the Capitol. Uh, was Bill O'Reilly asleep? He was What's in the no spin this? zone, and it happened in the <laughs> spin zone. Is what happened. 
So he didn't see it was the problem. <laughs> I mean, this is, it, it, I wish this was just a, I wish this was a joke, but this is somebody who millions of people listen to every single day. And, and it's like, they're issuing the talking points for voters now. Simon, I mean, you live in Portland. You've seen these people up close. You've yeah. been yeah. doxxed by them. It, it, yeah. And it's, it's really terrifying that, um, that Bill O'Reilly is, you know, can get away with saying things like that and have like 40,000 people like that tweet, you know? Um, the conservatives are doing all they can to change the meaning of white supremacy. Uh, and I think that it's sort of, it's become our job on the left to really explain very clearly what white supremacy is and what it looks like. Because what, what white supremacy looks like today in, in 2021 is not what white supremacy looked like you know, 200 years ago, it, it's, it's, it's different. It's, it's um, sort of codified into these systems that we have in, in, in the government um, and it's, and in our economic system. And it's really just, um, I don't, I don't know. I don't know what it is that we need to do to get through to people. Uh, we're never going to get through to Bill O'Reilly, but, but to the people that he speaks to. Um, to, to tell them this is what white supremacy looks like today, and, and we're seeing it right now, and it just gets worse. And I, I think you know Rush Limbaugh was around for a very long time, but really took off in the '80s and '90s, and it was the '90s when they got rid of you know a lot of the FCC guidelines, right? right? So right. all those big radio stations could conglomerate, could be bought up, uh, and the same thing we're seeing newspapers being bought off by hedge funds constantly and just being destroyed. And so it's the media landscape itself. Cable, yes. you know, cable uh, is still very strong. And that allows a big company like Fox to not win a vast majority of viewers, but like a sizable segment of them enough, a sizable enough segment. And so this is, you know, it's all enabled by corporate money, which is enabled by, uh, you know, enabled by the laws that just loosen regulations. And I don't know that like anyone, w I can't imagine any Democrat or Republican wants to further regulate the media. They'll just be, they'll be destroyed for it. But allowing this kind of vertical integration and this monolith and these huge radio companies that are run surely for profit and by terrible people who, who want to see these policies put in place so they can continue to deregulate. I mean, that is all connected too. you know, it's not like they just happen to win and, uh, you know, get all the, mo the most listeners because they happen to be the most dynamic. Right. You know, they, they're put in place by people who are more powerful than them. Yeah, that's 100 percent true. I mean, it's so funny about uh, Bill O'Reilly. I, I used to do a debate segment every week on Wednesdays with this person uh, who <laughs> later attacked me uh, at Fox News physically and then sued me when I tweeted about it and then got her lawsuit thrown out of court. Um, I can now speak about that. It was a real fun one. Uh, her, <laughs> she herself was extremely uh, conservative, but we used to do this regular segment and it it had the ratings were like, I, I was shocked by how these ratings were. I mean, they were incredible ratings and it was, you know, we kind of looked alike and Bill O'Reilly was like really into it. And I, it felt like I was entering the terror zone, not the no spin zone, but um, you know, I was there as the leftist going up against them and doing the whole dynamic. The reason I say this, this, it was, it is, it is absolute political theater and they're doing this, you know, they know very well, Thing they say is inflammatory and it's doing well with the ratings and they think they have a punching bag, but not always. It is a game. They're gamifying the media and they've been doing this for years. Um, it, they did it on CNN. They do it on MSNBC. They do it on, on Fox and the ratings are 
equal to the gamification. Shep Smith's ratings were nowhere near what Bill O'Reilly's ratings are in terms of the debates and the backs and forth, back and forth, or, Laura, uh, or Ingram, whatever her name is, Laura Ingram. You know, these are people who have been trained and they've, they've down to the millisecond, how much this is gamified and intentional to push, I mean, everything from, you know, Roger Ailes used to do this thing where he would say, you know, you don't wear big earrings on TV. It distracts the viewers from your face. And they knew that the viewers, the more that they looked at a pretty woman, the less information they would process. That was an actual study. The, you know, male audience. So this is the media culture that we've lived in. And then you have this extra boost from, you know, lack of net neutrality, no media oversight. It's not that shows like this don't do well with an audience. It's just not only we're not boosted, we don't have, it's not equal. We're we're actually put down and it's only getting worse. Um, I'm glad you said that, Jordan, but it's just, I have so many flashbacks of being in cable news and being like, I think it's also, there's a coherent, you know, for better or worse, and it's worse, uh, coherent ideology for conservatives that I don't think exists necessarily for a long time on the left, right? It's like guns, God, uh, freedom, and gays or whatever, you know? Yeah. And I don't think like, and like we're, you know, they always say that we are the ones who are, per, you know, persecuted. There's that persecution complex. And so it's a matter of, it's, it's like this cultural uh you know, they're whipping them up. They're whipping up into the further fervor and they're like all on the same side and they're all have the same ideology. And I think the beautiful thing about the left is that it's a very diverse place with people who, you know, have different religious beliefs. They have different cultural beliefs. They have different, you know, uh, all a whole range of it. But I think that because of that coherence, uh, so to speak, of evil on the right, I think that adds to it as well. You know, you kind of know what you're going to get and you know that they're speaking kind of in a weird way on your behalf, you know, like they are outraged on your behalf. And I think that helps too. That's actually the psychology. It's very smart, uh, a great, great way of, of phrasing it. The persecution. Um, anytime I see people in the media who have huge followings talk about being persecuted, I'm like, oh, that is a strategy. I know that's a strategy. That is something they teach you conservative message trainings to do. Yeah. Simon, go ahead. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think it's, it's um, that makes a lot of sense for why, you know, conservatives tend to be, um, you know, white and uh, cisgendered and straight. And because it's like people who don't really have an understanding of what, uh, you know, persecution, repression, oppression uh, actually are. And so they can throw these terms around and say, I am being oppressed, um, as, you know, as they're on like Fox News. Uh, to, like, Censored. <laughs> no, yeah. And I think it goes back to, you know, the era of you know, civil rights where they felt like the white person was being the one who was oppressed because things had to change a bit. And so I think it goes back for so long. And there's that tradition of being like, you know, the silent majority, even you know, Nixon's you know, silent majority. I think like that is where it kind of comes from. Or, I mean, long before that, but I mm-hmm. think it's the modern version of it. Um, Rook, do you guys have a few more minutes? You good? Yeah. Okay. Uh, I want to quickly talk about this town hall yesterday where uh, President Biden is uh, talking about student Loan relief, student debt relief. Uh, Let's play that clip. Student loans are crushing my family, friends, and fellow Americans. Me too. (laughs) The American dream is to succeed, but how can we fulfill that dream when debt is many people's only option for a degree? We need student loan forgiveness beyond the potential $10,000 your administration has proposed. We need at least a $50,000 minimum. What will you do to make that happen? I will not make that happen. 
uh, I feel your pain. I hear your pain. That was like, that wasn't like, I feel your pain. It was like, yeah, you think I'm kidding. I know some kids who, uh, in our family, you know, the third cousins we don't talk to who've got some student loans. Uh, I told them to go to Ukraine and go, uh, work for my son, (laughs) pay him off. That's how we deal with it. Why can't you do that? Come on guys, just go work for an energy company. It's, it's kind of the perfect example of not really understanding what the deal is. I mean, you know, I'm sure when Joe Biden's, you know, his kids were with the school probably, the, you know, 80s and 90s, it was expensive, but he was also, his kids went to private school and they were, you know, uh, he was a senator, you know, and I don't think that he quite gets it. I don't think he's probably talked to anyone that's dealt with student debt in that way in so long. I don't think that people, senators really understand it. They can look at the math. They don't really get how crushing it is. Even for, they talk about, oh, Biden said, you know, I don't want people who want the elite private schools to get the, get the help. And it's like, People who go to elite private schools who are wealthy already pay for it. They paid for it because they're wealthy. It's the people who go to elite private schools and don't have the money, but they're told to go because that's the, their key to success, which doesn't come because this generation after generation has just been crushed. And those are the people who need it most in, in a lot of cases. And they probably wouldn't qualify for it too. Let's make that, these are federal loans. We're not talking about private loans. Um, yeah, in, in a lot of cases, yeah. I mean, I think it's a matter of just like those people need help and it doesn't really it shouldn't matter like how much money you make you know it, it shouldn't matter i mean to some degree like it it shouldn't matter how much money you make or what school you go to you know if you're t- i feel like we've been told especially people of our age like their whole lives go to college it'll all work out and then you leave college and rate income hasn't risen in like 30 40 years simon yeah i, I was just gonna say in response to what, what jordan was talking about how biden is maybe a little bit out of touch a little bit removed from the suffering that people have now or the, the kinds of debt that people are carrying. Uh, I think you're absolutely right. And uh, I actually watched like the longer version of his answer and it just gets worse. Like he goes and talks about his, uh, how at one point he was the poorest uh, senator and he and True. his children went into all of these, like he's like, oh, my son went to, to Yale and uh, and got this degree and then had a bunch of debt. And I'm like, okay, well, most people can't even go to Yale. Like, and if they do take on that kind of debt, like they don't have a parent who's a senator. It's like, he's just totally rude. And he goes on for minutes and talks about that. And then he goes and says, oh, and then like, but you will be able to uh, work off some of your debt, um, which is ridiculous because people are already trying to work off their debt. Um, and, and, and they're not, and it's clearly not working for them. So it's just, it's really, really, really like frustrating and and just reeks of this sort of like um total detachment from like the average american's experience and just in terms of economics right like they it be 1.9 trillion dollars if you wipe that out or a lot of that out so many people will be free to i don't know have a kid uh get a house get a home spend money in the economy we're getting to the point where anyone below the age 40 has no savings and what are the things going to happen you think the economy is going to keep going the way people are when they're in debt and not only that, then people would flock to Democrats for generations. You know, That's right. like the same thing with the New Deal. If they were to relieve fifty, sixty, seventy thousand dollars in college debt, I would vote for anybody who would do that. Yes, I mean, this is exactly, nothing about this makes any sense to me. First off, he can with a pen, he can wipe it away, and it literally does not affect anything. Anything. The government anything. owns it. It's, like, it's the not even private debt. It. It's it's not private. Furthermore. Uh, he comes from Credit Card Delaware. I'm pretty sure that these credit card companies would love it if the people who grew up off of credit cards because they couldn't afford to survive could suddenly start paying off their credit cards because they had some extra money. 
So there's that. I think the landlords would love it because they're like, oh, look at I can keep people in housing because they don't have to first go to their student loans because they can't get rid of their student loans and go live in their parents' basements, as as Hillary Clinton said. You know, it would solve so many of the other crises in which other industries are, are, are now suddenly struggling because everybody who has a student loan has to pay their student loans first or else they're coming for you. You don't have a choice. Other than like working it off? Oh, you, you want indentured servitude now? But you know who passed that bill, uh, who sponsored that bill in the Senate to make it undis- undischargeable was Joe Biden. Yeah. So he's got to, you know, he's just living out his. Well, that's the other thing is like there was such a, um, sometimes he does this thing that Bill Clinton, I've, I've noticed, has been doing lately or like last 10 years. They get very angry when confronted Mm -hmm. and lose whatever that touch that they've always, you know, when they're on and when they're campaigning and when they're talking to the second grader or Bill Clinton's, you know, out there shaking hands. What what, got them into office, the campaign mode. The campaign mode switches off and it's like the guillotine mode. The guillotines are coming and they just like put their foot down even more, whether it's Bill Clinton arguing with the veteran um, at a diner I don't know if you guys remember that clip or arguing with Black Lives Matter protesters um, or this. It's just it's like this inhumane side. It's just revealed. And you're like, oh, you're just completely heartless. You disgusting human. You know exactly what's going on. And the fact that you're still better than Trump just shows you the state of this country right now. It's like Andrew Cuomo, except he's not charming, really. He gets even more pissed when he's challenged. Jordan, next next week we could just do an entire Andrew Cuomo segment. That's a that's a show. I spoke with Ron Kim this weekend, and then Cuomo just ripped on him. And yeah, Ron people... Kim Queens shout out. Yep, I, I don't want to get into uh, Cuomo, but I'm I'm glad that people realize what a terrible person he is. Yes, yes. Uh, if if I will give a shout out, if it's still on the market, I don't know if it's it's easy to find or hard to find. There is a great biography about Andrew Cuomo uh, that. The uh, Michael Shamans, Shamanson, Shaman. I apologize to Michael, uh, but it's a great book if you can find it. I don't think it's being printed anymore uh, because Andrew Cuomo does what he does. Very good writer. Um, it was unauthorized, of course, but really good. Very well sourced and and checked. And I believe that the author is now writing about uh, art. Yeah, I'm sure it's dried I up. Tried to get an interview with him a while back, and he was like. I am no longer talking about Andrew Cuomo. I now write about art. <laughs> it's like, and that tells you. By the way, breaking news, uh, Andrew, I think the Cuomo family contender, that's it, exactly. Thank you, you are on it. Although we don't we don't push Amazon. It's just the only, I think the only way we can find it. Shayerson, that's it. Um, turns out an aide to Andrew Cuomo is rumored to be taking over CNN. Well, good. Is it Chris Cuomo? <laughs> no, it's just going to be all Cuomo's. Maria Cuomo's going to have a cooking show. And no, it's whatever. I forgot Andrew Cuomo's mom's name. They're going to talk about their uh, their their risotto recipe. <laughs> Wasn't he married to a, a, a what you call it? A, a food channel, food network host for a while? Yes, but they've broken They're up. They're dating? So. Okay, yeah. No, they were together for a long yeah. time. Now we're Angelique. on the portion of the Cuomo gossip segment. <laughs> Simon, have any thoughts? <laughs> no, no, I'll leave this one to you. Lucky. <laughs> All right, guys. If you want to stick it around, uh, Jordan and I are going to do a two-person show on the Cuomo family. <laughs> All right. Everybody uh, be well. Thank you so much, Simon and Jordan. Always a pleasure having you on on Wednesdays.
And we got some shout outs here. Oh, uh, our dear friend, uh, Marcus Farrell, just want to give him some love. Uh, they have, I'm sure you guys, if you haven't checked it out, check out Clickbaity Political Thirst Trap uh, on YouTube. Just put that in the search bar. They're a new show. Fantastic show. I've been on it when it was in the, um, in the morning and now they've got a, an evening show. Definitely go check out uh, the show. They do great work. Marcus has been on the show. And um, as always, I know I can't say Marcus's name without saying reparations. Reparations. Uh, reparations with everything else. Smart. Fadi Enton sends us some love. Thank you, Fadi. And Ian Kinzel says the conservative persecution complex sounds like me complaining about my basketball team never making the playoffs. We were robbed 15 years in a row. <laughs> Except Except no, they're always in power. They always win. So they still feel per persecuted. It would be like if you were Tom Brady and you're like, I don't, I'm, I'm really not good with the sports references, but it would be like if you were Tom Brady and you're just like, it's so hard being winning Super Bowls and just like all the cleaning I have to do of these trophies. You just don't understand. It's just so much work having to shine the trophies, which I guess he insulted those two. The dynamic dreamer. To be fair though, how many lefties actually listen to the radio? Great. Um, great question. I used to work for SiriusXM and we actually didn't know, <laughs> or I didn't know, I should say, they do. Dr. Dragon Rider, what do you think about the pronunciation of, I'm, I'm going to say PR because this gets to it. I feel bad not pronouncing it correctly with my PR friends. However, if I was a politician, it would feel like pandering. I uh, tried to practice my Spanish. I worked on the island, as so many of you guys um, know, and we try to have uh, regular guests on from the island or part of the diaspora. Uh, I was told there's two ways. I always roll my R's. I try to roll my R's, but it's Puerto Rico, like port or Puerto Rico. Um, but please correct me if you were from the island because I don't want to be the, 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 it's not up to me to decide. So maybe we'll have somebody on and ask them. I know exactly who to have on next week. We'll, we'll bring on a guest. So stay tuned. Uh, all right. Who else do we have here? In, Nkosin. Hi, Nomiki. I would like to know who to talk to in order to get the pledge going. Holding you to it. 75 subs streaming among us. 100 subs. Monster Hunter World on Twitch. Tell them to email. Oh, that's Dorsey. <laughs> Tell them to email us at <laughs> the Nomiki show at gmail.com. We will figure it out. We can get that pledge going. We got to get the subs up. Got to break the system. They're doing all we got to keep it going. So join us on Twitch. Let's get those subs up there. Uh, appreciative to everybody rating the chats always. All of our, our fellow friends at different shows. Mike from PA. Of course, the Majority Report. Uh, the Surfs. Uh, many, many others. Kowalski from Nebraska sends his love. Says, oh, mighty Sierra's a Libra. What is your purpose? Oh, wait, I just lost it. Hang on. LOL. I don't know if I get that. I'll probably have to come back on that one. And thank you, of course, to Harvey K, who's in the chat right now on YouTube and Twitch. Midi Docs, you're always there working out those algorithms. You're a pro. And of course, our moderators, Bob, Bob C, Choken, The Orb, and Chuck D Diesel over at YouTube. And Dorian Sapiens, A Difficult Truth, Our Means, and Nug Wrangler on Twitch for keeping our live chats troll-free. Uh, and moderators, I know we keep saying this, send us your addresses at thenomikishow at gmail.com. We want to show you the love. We got some fun swag. Want to send it over. And before I go, um, I have a personal request. Uh, I have a, a very good friend um, from college, her mother, uh, is very sick right now with COVID. Uh, she's been on the ventilator for 
nine days now. And uh, she is really, her family is, is asking for all love, positive thoughts, whatever you believe in. Um, I know so many people have been hit by COVID. I have really uh, made a case public on, for anybody that I know that has had um, COVID or been very sick or um, family members or friends that have, have passed, but she's a, a really good friend and her mother's name is Rosie. Um, so if you can, if you feel comfortable, if you want to, please uh, just think about her for a little bit. Um, try to send her all the love because it's, it's, uh, it's very tight. And I've, I've known them for a long time and she's a really just a beautiful person. And she has two very, very young grandchildren. Um, so please keep her in your prayers, your thoughts, your energy, uh, whatever you can. So I just, I just want to throw that out there. So, um, all right. On that note, we'll see you tomorrow. Stay in solidarity. <laughs>